Welcome to the Spoiler Alert Podcast, and today we are going to be reviewing Dune from 1984, directed by David Lynch. Dune is based off of a book by Frank Herbert um, from 1964. It's a sci-fi film set in the year 10,191, so pretty far out. It were like um, 8,000 plus years into the future, so... yeah um we're not going to talk about the new dune all that much but we would be bearing the lead if we didn't mention that uh in light of the new dune uh we would like to explain a little bit about the old dune although in, in doing so uh it's inevitable that we'll essentially spoil all of the new movie like because the plot sure. is essentially identical i mean so there's right that. and before we get started I want to just remind everybody that, you know, we have a Spotify, we have a YouTube channel, we have a Patreon, we have a Instagram, we have a Twitter. We're really working on expanding what we have now. We want to make different types of videos, some shorter ones that are more recommendation based that aren't, you know, piece by piece by piece necessarily, but maybe some that delve into television some that delve into video games, if ones that we don't necessarily necessarily like, it might be an individual one. So I might have a TV show, Dakota might have a video game or vice versa. We're also gonna be bringing out different types of documentaries. Uh, not sure about the timeline on these things, but I just want everybody out there to know that changes are coming for the better. Uh, we're still gonna continue to do the same sort of format we've been doing with these with these videos, but we just want to dash in some some different some different kind kind of videos for people. EU stuff, expanded universe. Of yeah, the yeah. <laughs> the, the spoiler alert, cinematic universe. <laughs> um, and we're also going to work on uh, trying to get some merchandise out there uh, through various avenues, which we'll have more news on by the next video, possibly. We'll see. So, just some background on David Lynch. If you've never seen a David Lynch film, it's a really weird dude. I dig his movies. He's not for everybody. What What do you think of David Lynch, Dakota? Uh, exactly that. I mean, you know, I love Mulholland Drive. I loved uh, Firewalk with me. I mean, I watched Twin Peaks and I also watched the new Twin Peaks where he just, I I don't even, but there's nothing else like it. I guess I'll say about, I, I when he works, uh, which I think he did with Mahalo Drive, um, he's exceptional, you know, and mm -hmm. other times he's a bit, not even, a, he's definitely overly self-indulgent, I think at times, other people might disagree, um, but I, yeah, that's, a, I, I have mixed feelings, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but I right. don't think it's completely unwarranted his, uh, his reputation or anything, like, like, it, it, he, like he does, well, I guess to summarize what what works and what's also infuriating is he takes all the time in the world to make you feel something, to make you feel a scare or whatever. And that could be, you know, it could be really, I mean, it's frustrating. It's like, I I think he goes too far with the new season of Twin Peaks. Uh, I think Elephant Man was more traditional and Racerhead was fucking weird. And then like- uh, But yeah, I, I really like Blue, I do really like Blue Velvet. It's probably my favorite movie David Lynch has done. Uh, I mean, Mulholland Drive it's is one of my favorite movies. Honestly, I'm like so. Whatever I've said, I always feel like I, I go into Drive. Much. You yes. would not expect it, but Mulholland Drive has the biggest scare for me I've ever had in a movie. Do you remember, you and you know it's coming. 
and some it just doesn't fucking matter like i don't know how that still well, it's got exactly because you know it's gonna come and then like what what meets it is like somehow even worse like i think he knew mm-hmm. i don't know yeah that yeah. is a really and, but okay. yeah that that movie does some like really impressive things just like in weird ways um like you said elephant man's pretty traditional the straight story is pretty traditional eraser head i thought was fun kind of more like a film school vibe fucking nobody knows this but he does fucking weird ass music and it's kind I mean, of entertaining yeah, I, mean, I actually i think maybe it was even you who sent it to me yeah i think you made i think i sent it. you like crazy crazy clown time yeah and, and was, then yep that's like the weirdest one and then he does i want to have a good day today which is probably the most radio friendly one that i've heard and he's just got a weird voice too yeah uh so it's just strange hearing him sing uh he's also been in episodes of louis uh as an actor and he makes a cameo in this film and we'll talk about that so the film opens with virginia madsen doing a lot of exposition and that's a lot of this movie is exposition because somewhere in the cutting room it was decided (laughs) that no one's gonna know what the fuck this movie is about because they're cramming like a humongous amount of material in that book into two hours so like with maybe gauged expectations of to like as to like how they're even going to pull it off as a narrative because there's just so much to go over. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of people, I think, from what I understand, were like, well, you just can't even do it. And I can't say they were wrong, but it tries. So, um, yeah, I mean, like right from the start, I mean, there are a bunch of it, it's weird. She's fading in and out. You can tell she's like reading because the plot is so complicated that uh, Arrow just released the movie in 4K, but I wasn't even watching it. Like, you can watch her eyes move. Like, she's reading. And she even has, like, these puzzled expressions. You know, like, what the fuck is any of this that's going on? I mean, so that's usually not a good start. She even says the beginning is the most difficult part of, like, you know, or, or some shit. I, I think that was the movie's way of saying, yeah, it's good. You, you got a lot that you're going to need to pay attention to. Actually, I suppose we should get it out of the way by saying this movie... Every line of dialogue you need to memorize because it's going to matter like fucking 45 minutes later. The movie's not going to remind you. It does not have the time. It's not going to repeat itself ever. You need to remember every fucking thing that is said by anybody ever. And because it'll be a revelation at like at just random moments, you know, it's like, father, like, and it's like, oh, that's because he said this thing 45 minutes earlier and see the prophecy is fulfilled. And, you know, like, yeah. There's, there's no time to breathe. It's just every, yeah. Um, it's the most briskly paced, dense movie. I, I, I honestly think I can say that with no hyperbole that I, I've ever seen. So it's, um, it's, it's very dense. And, but the one thing that they do kind of get across is if they get anything across in this movie, it's, it's that Spice is super valuable. And background here. So Spice is basically this really cool drug the spice is only found on a planet called Arrakis, a.k.a. Doom. It's a desert planet. Nothing fucking lives there other than these giant worms that are behind me. And yeah. this spice is used like it's a hallucinogenic. It's good for your health. 
it's good for your like yeah, kind it, of it like your life so it, people are yeah it kind of like, like in a weird way like hacks you into the matrix if you will it, you know type of type of vibe thing, like so it's it's because it is so important like i can't say i fully even understand how it works but like okay so for one thing it it elongates your life like people are living like biblical ages i think in this world i'm not sure but like you know and there's a lot of biblical stuff probably there's a lot it's it's never specific like there's so many things you could attach to this but it's so broad and nebulous that like i think that's why it endures over time i don't know how it works like how the spice allows the navigators this is all set up in like the first three minutes and even right. the actress saying all this shit seems confused so like the navigators are a guild that seem to have more power or influence even than the emperor they're the benny jesuits who are like psychic, psychic witches. And that's Paul Atreides' mother, is, the main character's mother is a Bene Gesserit. Um, and they have been systematically breeding uh, over centuries to create the perfect mind capable of traveling through time and space. But the thing is that like the Navigator's Guild seems to already be able to do that. Both of them seem to have relatively equal amounts of influence over the emperor who's the head honcho otherwise. But obviously we need the navigators to travel through space. Otherwise everything's fucked. So they do have a lot of say. I mean, I guess you could just force them at gunpoint to do it, but I, I guess you can't. I don't know. Anyway, it's really complicated. And, and Spice helps people to be it able helps to- the navigators to navigate, how they yeah, do it. And, and the term they use, and this is something I give, I give every rendition of Dune credit, is they call, they call it folding space to fold yep. space so that you can travel anywhere in the universe without fucking moving. And yep. the cool thing about that is I watched like Neil deGrasse Tyson bullshit a lot, or at least I definitely did during 2020. Uh, yep. Been on a little bit of a hiatus now, but they explain how like interdimensional travel and space travel, like, and this is an Albert Einstein thing too. And it's actually explained in Interstellar like wormholes don't exist technically, but if they did, or if we, if humans could create a, a wormhole, it would do this to space. So instead of traveling from point A to point B, from the end of the paper to the end of the paper, or, or from, or around the bottom of the paper to the other side of the paper, they fold space and then pop through. And that's that was, the wormhole. No, it's a really yeah. great simple way of putting it yeah so yeah so i give herbert i give lynch i give villain wave i give i i give the creators of this tv show all like credit i don't know it's just yeah it's clever and it's actually if not scientifically possible it's like it's well, that, that was like, a, plausible you know what yeah, i mean because i'm trying to remember how he explains it in event horizon it's like so you basically go around it by folding space-time because like the law of relativity otherwise wouldn't allow for space travelers i don't i can't fucking remember but but yeah so it's 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 the most plausible way i guess so um, correct yeah uh, whether whether it's possible or not it's the most possible right and then the fremen are enslaved on dune there are these people that have been like would they technically be native like what's their what's their background because it seems like a place where people would not be native to so did they were they just there 
did they travel there first and just kind of stay there and then become enslaved? And well, that's what I'm guessing is that like it's, it's basically like how humanity probably branched out of Africa. We similarly branched out into the stars. I don't know because I mean, there are like 20 Dune books, maybe not actually that many. I don't know. Like, but I just, they seem to be indigenous. Yeah. And they're, you know, it, and it's the, um, the, the major houses that that want the spice that are coming in i mean that's that's really i mean the plot as it is is basically what there is i mean to work with so and, and the main two houses are atreides and harkonnen, and harkonnen. Yep. Uh, from the old one i don't know if they give us a great reason why atreides and harkonnens hate each other so much and you know what yep. makes them different what makes harkonnens more vile what makes them more like violent and whatnot or I'm not quite sure what all goes on with the history of those houses. I'm sure the book really gets into it. I bet the TV show gets into it. It actually it, does it. <laughs> like, I mean, it's so like, I don't know. <laughs> just, they're always like that. They're just yeah. like, it, it's just going to be. They're just assholes. Um, it's, just, <laughs> it's just oil and water between those two, I guess. Yep. Um, we're introduced then to Paul Atreides, who's played by Kyle McLaughlin, who is a regular to semi-regular in David Lynch films. He's also in Blue Velvet. I believe this was his film, uh, his first film role. He was scouted in Seattle doing theater work. And uh, so just from what he said in the documentary, I think this was his first film. So yeah, so he's just a kid doing theater work. Uh, yeah, and he's, he's Kyle McLaughlin is definitely not the worst part of this film. What? Kyle uh, McLaughlin, yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, it, like, it, like sometimes I think he looks genuinely confused as to what's going on. Everybody does, like the emperor and, and well, and, and the emperor's daughter opening the movie, but the emperor is doing the same thing. You can tell he's reading a teleprompter. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna make the Harkonnens lose a lot of money by wiping out the Atreides because the Atreides are a threat to me. And then, but they'll also be weakened from the much. So I'll take them down a notch. And then there's like, but there are space wizards instead. Like, yeah, so he seems really confused. Um, and so does the dog. Everybody seems confused for like the first 15 minutes of this movie. And then after <laughs> that, just the audience that's really confused. But um, so. I don't really want to bash Dune too much on this note because like it was the time, but he has a training battle with one of his Patrick Stewart trainers, Patrick Stewart. And they're so in these like. Who is, who's Gurney? The, the character's right. name would be Gurney. Yep, he's who's Gurney, and they're in these electric boxes that are yeah. very like. If you've ever seen the mu the music video to, uh, 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 money for nothing, money for nothing, yeah. yes, <laughs> basically that. Uh, Actually, so no, money for nothing. It's, it's looks worth better. mentioning as a <laughs> criticism that that looks really bad. But actually, to be fair to Money for Nothing, did that come like a couple years later? So we're we'll be nice to Dune. It had, mm -hmm. you know, Money for Nothing had two years on Dune, but Tron came out two years before this and looks a hell of a lot better. So that's you know. true. It's a little bit of both. Like I we gotta I feel like we gotta mention it, but I don't want to drag it through the mud. I don't either, but there are three main things for me where this like sometimes the special effects really are good. Um like lighting's off and whatever, but I think you everything know, they do with the fucking worm looks decent. Yes, the worm looks fucking great. The worm is great. It's iconic. I mean, those are great shots. So, you mm -hmm. know, and my favorite, favorites easily. But um, I guess we'll get to them when we get to them. But they're right. It's and like usually when they, really good. And whenever they, like, they peer into the worm's mouth, like that's, 
like that's like on par with anything else you'd see you know what i mean yeah but you know i mean doing special effects are really i mean you know it's 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 kind of visually overwhelming i mean a lot of the time but they're mostly good but they're like i'll point them out as they come along they're like three things for me where i'm just like that does not hold up you know in a really bad way so but right. yeah i don't want to beat up on it too much that way either so so like they kind of have like a fun like like kind of master master student type of teacher student type of relationship him and patrick stewart's character gurney it's not fun in that scene because he's like if you didn't fight with all your strength because he's like would you have actually hurt me gurney and he's like yeah you know i would have scarred you so that you remember your lesson i mean like because they're going to arrakis and and the the idea and this is i think conveyed a lot better because it has all the time in the you know in the new one but arrakis is going to be hard and so Gurney's really trying to prepare Paul. Um, so he says, yeah, I would, I would have scarred you, you know, because you need to take this seriously. We're going to be going into danger, you know. Uh, yeah. It's easy to miss that. It's easy to miss almost anything in this movie, but that's the sentiment and, and of this movie. And to this point, Harkonnens usually do, mo- have, are, do have most of the spice harvesting, to my yeah. knowledge, right? The Harkonnens possess the planet for 80 years. The emperor is trying to take them down a notch. Well, actually really trying to address the legitimate threat of the Atreides popularity. So the uh, Harkonnens will lose a lot of money going to war with the Atreides and they'll wipe them out completely. I think he's being short-sighted there, but he's also said to be really greedy. This is in the new version. It does, I think, convey these ideas a lot better though, um, you know, because it, it has more time, but um, that the Harkonnens will be majorly weakened. They'll have spent so much money on trying to wipe out the Atreides that they'll not be a threat for quite some time. The thing is, though, they're going to be the only major house left. There are other houses. We never see them or even hear from them, but they're really the only legitimate threat to the Emperor. So, I, I mean, the logical thing to do would be to keep Atreides and the Harkonnens in balanced contention, but instead the Emperor opts to wipe out the Atreides entirely because he sees them as such a threat. In every version, these spice harvesters have more power than the emperor, if not, or at the very least, as much. Yeah, it said that the Harkonnens are richer than the emperor. So, I mean, like, you can think of, like, Game of Thrones. Like, basically, the first season, you have the Starks and the Lannisters. There are other people that come to the forefront as it goes on. But, you know, the Lannisters are rich, like, very rich. And that's kind of the Harkonnens. The Harkonnens have a lot of money, more than the emperor, even. So, um, so it's kind of a weird thing. So he wants to kind of rectify that by putting the two houses at war and then he'll come out on top is the idea. Oh, so the emperor wants to pit both of them against each other. Yeah, exactly. But the Atreides are more popular than the emperor, like politically, but the Harkonnens have more money than the emperor. He figures the solution to this is pit them against each other, but he does side with the Harkonnens. So the the objective is to wipe out the Atreides completely, which I think is short-sighted, but the movie does address that he's short-sighted and greedy a lot of that's expanded on in the miniseries um i don't know where they're going to go in the new movies and who knows if they even said it in the david lynch movie because there's so much information thrown at you at such a rapid rate i can't remember a, fl- a fraction of it so um but another character that we kind of meet is dean stockwell's character who has recently passed away which i uh, yeah so he's also in blue velvet He's, uh, he's in a few other things. So he recently passed away. He plays Dr. Yue, um, who we get, we will talk more about him later, but I, I just felt like pointing that out right there. Uh, Paul fights a robot 
for more Ooh. practice and uh again i was gonna say well oh yeah shit i mean there are shields right so that, that most people use close-handed weapons like uh swords the ex explanation is that like high velocity projectiles won't penetrate shields so the slow moving blade you know even quick slashes won't make their way through but concentrated forceful stabs and stuff will make their way through these shields but anyway when he's in training i was also thinking those look really deadly isn't the idea of training to like i mean you, you probably don't want to die in your training it's to prepare you for the real deal but not to kill you but I, like I've seen that kind of trope in other movies like like Tomb Raider where like Angelina Jolie's going up against a fucking like you know robot with buzz saws and shit I'm like you know don't you want to save that for the real deal you know I mean there's I don't know but whatever yeah um, a little more violent than like the floating ball in Star Wars yeah which I wanted to draw comparisons to Star Wars actually I mean now that it's been brought up so like obviously the novel would have come out before Star Wars and I, I would be really surprised if setting it on Tatooine, and there's obviously a very similar kind of hero's journey yes, with Star Wars. Sure. So, uh, and if nothing else, the Mandalorian, holy shit, rips the hell out of, rips off Dune in the second season, the first episode. There's a giant sandworm that they have to, so, I mean, I think its influence can be felt. Uh, it, it is really an influential work. I mean, even if I haven't read it, but apparently it's the best-selling novel, science fiction novel of all time. So. Again, um, yeah, again, I own it, but it's an intimidating book. Like it's got, if it looks like, I think it's over like at I've least seen it. over 800 or 900 pages. Uh, he has a vision in his dream of Sting, which uh, From I the forgot police. the exact details of that dream, but I think, I think Sting was there. You know, well, but, I guess we should address that Sting is in this book. So in his introduction, there's a guitar riff because Toto does the soundtrack to this movie the, which the is soundtrack is decent man it, yeah, certain I, parts like it's good yeah and there's always like this almost self-aware smirk like on stings like i am sting he's never really <laughs> fade until maybe the last fight in the film he's always just sting and then it, um baron harkonnen whenever he gazes upon lovely beautiful sting i mean he's a sting fanboy because man those those are some piercing looks he's given sting um and i mean you know so yeah uh but he's, he's the creepy uncle to the max um around sting but um so um, but, yes yeah um, and like I, sting being in this movie does kind of break the illusion because like it, it does but like i actually am almost okay with it it's one of the rare occasions i don't know yeah. why i can't justify it I just it's, like it. It's you almost know? so goofy. It's like fuck it. It's a movie. Um, right. Uh, he's never bad, but he's always stable. <laughs> you know. That's that's exactly right. Uh, he meets up with this tele like kind of telepathic woman, who again is like I think this is kind of part more of his training to like prepare him for going on Dune. I forget what her title is, but she's like up there. She's like you know um, very, at the top, very experienced. Yes, um, very high-ranking, like telepathic, psychological, fucky person. Yeah. You know? So I guess we should. I mean, like it's complicated. All right. So his father had a what would you call it love affair? I guess with a Benny Gesserit, but he never married her because he wanted to keep his political options open. He didn't want to. He. I mean, you you can tell they love each other, but. 
for political reasons to better the house and everybody under them, he had to keep his marriage options open. So he took her as a concubine. So, oh yeah, well, the thing is that the Bene Gesserits only produce females. Paul is the first male uh, produced from a Bene Gesserit. But there is a prophecy that a male Bene Gesserit will come to pass and will do all these things or whatever. But I mean, they've been calculating for centuries. So when Jessica decides out of her love for Paul's father to have a male child uh, with him, uh, they see this as pure hubris, like, because there is this prophecy around that, but the, you have, like, but she even says their game is made in centuries, you know, you're nothing special, and you totally fucked up, like, that. you know, your kid isn't special, it's like the Fight Club message, like, what the hell made you think out of, you know, your love that, that, that you know, you were going to produce the Messiah, so that's kind of the whole controversy there. So they're especially harsh on Paul during this initial test. And you can kind of decide to have a male or a female? I'll just try to, okay, the Betty Jesuits, what they've been trying to achieve, just so you understand, is they, through centuries, have been trying to create a mind that transcends space and time through selective breeding. But it was always supposed to be a female. But there is a prophecy that that mind will ultimately end up being a male. But because they've been doing this for hundreds of years, Jessica's decision to actually be the first Benny Gesserit to give birth to a male, they see as pure hubris. They think that she did this out of her stupid love affair with Paul's father. And, you know, that's basically blasphemous, you know, and that she'll reap what she sows and die on Arrakis. Though they have tried to, because they still want to keep their own power. And she is a Benny Gesserit, who is the concubine of somebody who will potentially be influential on Arrakis. They have tried to and this is not very well explained in the Lynch version. There is that prophecy. They've laid it amongst the Fremen people in advance. They do mention that briefly in the Lynch film. And they're really playing that up. But the Bene Gesserits themselves don't actually believe really that Paul is the prophesized Messiah. But they do okay. kind of look out for their own because Jessica is in a position to at least potentially hold some sway, you know, because she will be the concubine of the guy who is in charge of Arrakis. Uh, albeit briefly so um but when you when you say it's hubris for her to have a son as a Benny Gesserit uh, they, yeah they don't a lot like so that's something I don't understand I don't know if they can choose what they have or if they right that's know, what I was asking so you don't yeah know. um I don't know I mean this is 8,000 years into the future I mean it's like even genetic engineering for children doesn't seem that far off from where we are right. I mean honestly you know you you explained a lot more about that than uh for sure the 1984 film and then probably just for me briefly that's it. a thing like the movie does I, this is the thing I don't want to ridicule it because it mentions all of this in a sentence and then moves on <laughs> I mean and then moves on right yeah. like and then one scene that happened earlier in the film uh which is kind of disconnected but like makes sense we kind of mentioned the emperor there's a scene where the emperor speaks to now is this a brain or is is this like an alien creature with a vagina mouth that bleeds right okay so those are the navigators and so here's where i'm confused because again i'm sure like I probably should have went to the wiki, but I thought it would, I don't think that's fair to do, right? I mean, because like, if it's not even remotely, I'm still not being fair because I've seen three iterations of this, one of which was five hours and heavily expands of these ideas without it 
I could watch this movie probably 20 times and not know what the fuck's going on. So like, okay, but you have the navigators who allow for space travel. How they do this, I don't understand. I don't know if they can actually fold space and time with their mind through the psychotropic powers of spice, or if I'm, I really don't know how it works. But through a long period of time, the reason, I think they were human once and they're actually heavily mutated. So the thing that I question is why the navigators have, like, I mean, why the Bene Gesserits even have any say? Because if the navigators truly can transcend space and time, of what use are the Bene Gesserits? Unless it's sort of as a political foil, because they're kind of trying to accomplish the same thing in their own arena mm -hmm. uh, to create a mind that transcends space and time, but they haven't actually achieved that. So like the navigators are, I believe humans, heavily mutated by the spice through, I mean, who knows, like spice also elongates life. So I also don't know if the barons, like deformities are a cause of the spice, but his eyes aren't blue. So I don't even know what the fuck's wrong with Baron. Yeah. Do, do Harkonnens travel through space with Well, they've spice? been on Arrakis long enough to be exposed to spice, but his eyes aren't blue. So I actually don't know also, where Also a weird thing that they just do better in the new moon is that like it makes it look like they have fucking mouth herpes like oh yeah he's got yeah like like and then brad duroff too is just like right down here and like other characters there is actually an ally to the atreides though that has his like what looks like his lipsticks spirit i mean it's not like or yes yeah, like he's herpes something it's it's some kind of infection or the makeup's a little more subtle in the new one here he just looks like he was wearing lipstick that got smudged or he has an infection or something. I don't know. But that and was then, also on the Atreides side is what I'm trying to say. Like, so I don't actually know. So it could <laughs> like, be both. And then, yep. Yeah, and then uh, the Fremen, their eyes are blue from exposure to spice over so many, so so much time. I want to uh, sing one of the few praises I can in the special effects uh, region uh, of any, uh, as far as the sci-fi version goes. I actually have to say I like the Fremen eyes in that version better than either of the two movie adaptations because they actually glow. You know, it, it, it's there's like they're um, I don't know they look like LEDs in the dark. You know, it's just it's this really weird look um, that brings a lot of life out of the emotions of the characters. So that's a movie where you have these really obviously artificial backdrops. It's a hallmark production, like I, I think I said. Um, so where I can sing some praises, I will say I actually like the Fremen eyes better in that one. So uh, he has this scene with uh, a Benny Jesuit um, woman who can speak to him in this voice that's like this like voice mm -hmm. of like power and like kind of like uh, you yeah, can weaponize your voice so, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but she, she can kind of, and like he's training to be better at that. He can do it a little bit. But um, so uh, she has this box next to her and she asks him to put his hand in the box. And the first time I watched it, I was like, ha ha ha, pussy joke. Um, and he's like, what will I find in here? And then she said, pain. And we have this voiceover that's like, fear is the soul killer. Fear is mind killer, enemy. Yeah. Uh, which is like cool stuff to, I, I actually like think about a lot is like how like fear holds people back. So like, that's just a, a cool thing I like across the board yeah. with Dune. Looks a little cheesy when we see his hand like burning. I'd, and I'd actually disagree. It's there, still I works. like the way it was done 
better in this one. I, I honestly have to say, like, I, I know that sounds weird, but like where she's, it, a lot of it's what she's saying too. Like, imagine the flesh melting off your bones and we like see it bubbling and melting. And like, it's, the effects might not, again, you know, they're passable maybe. There's a lot of smoke to conceal, but but I just thought like the damage being done and kind of visualizing what's actually happening. And, in the and verbalizing it too. Yeah, I, I like that a bit better, but that's just, I mean, you know. So he feels a great amount of pain and she has a poison needle to his neck so that like it's like instant death if he like reacts wrong or does something, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but he keeps his hand in the box longer than anyone else and she really loves him for that. So like he's definitely like next level kind of got some kind of some sort of like chosen oneness to him. Uh, yeah. So after we have the scene with the box, we're introduced to a house of Harakone and we're introduced to the Baron. He's this gross fuck who gets his warts and blisters drained and it's effective in coming, making him very vile and unlikable. So in that way, I give it, give him credit, but it's also almost so bad (laughs) that it's like hard to watch the movie. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I like, I love it, but I'm probably just sick. Like, so those are some of my favorite scenes from Lynch's. But like, as absolutely great as Skarsgård is, you know, and and honestly, the um the guy in the sci-fi miniseries, like um, yeah, um, he was he was pretty good too, actually. I mean, he but he plays it a lot more like the original actor, where Skarsgård is very different, and but it's similar, but it's different. Um, but uh, I also agree. This will sound really fucking weird with Skarsgård's sentiment. Uh, one of my biggest criticisms of, of uh, the new Dune is a lot of characters, when you really think about it, don't get a lot of scenes, but damn, the Baron needed more scenes. And more than that, Skarsgård felt that the Baron needed to be naked more of the time, but I know it's PG-13, but he seems to be willing to bear it all. And he's like, the Baron's scarier when he's naked. I'm like, yeah, actually, <laughs> you know, because the only, the only time we see him is like, he's kind of in this Darth Vader steam bath thing, you know, and it's, but Lynch's version is like PG-13, and uh, like, I thought it was R, like from my memory, I'm like, some of this stuff is so sick, like pulling the heart plug and just like, it's also debauched them. Like, how did this make PG-13? So I always just thought like- yeah, I, and I was he thinking, kind of rapes a guy. Yeah, I mean, it's so- <laughs> Like, it's heavily implied that like he, like it's implied that he pulls the heart plug of a very young servant boy uh, not, like, not like not un- like necessarily underage, but like young. He's all like quaking in the corner, like putting these like and you know the parents like <laughs> he's giving him the same same look he gives Sting, and this gets like I gotta get the fuck out of this room. <laughs> like and yeah, no, the the Baron gets all hot and bothered. He's turning red and shit, and then, yeah, he just like flies over to him, rips his heart like I'm just like smearing the blood on his face. Sting's getting excited. Everybody's. Uh, um, but it's so fucked up that like I, I there's no other version actually compares to it. So I think like that that's probably one of my favorites, just because it's fucked up. So my next uh, notes are Paul and his father leave for uh, Arrakis, uh, yeah. and then also the note after that is the pussy mouth brain uh, fold space. We get like some trippy fucking shit about that happening. What I understand that in hindsight to be from watching external materials, which is not fair, is that that is the navigator 
bending and folding space and time. Again, I don't understand how exactly, but, uh, and also the stars look like spice, but they only look like spice as portrayed by external materials. So I, I don't even know if that was deliberate or not. Anyway, but that's the gist of it. So these people really make the, the universe go round. They're really important, the navigators, the mutants, and I don't know. And then Paul and Atreides' troops are now on Dune. And they have special suits that they explain thoroughly uh, how, like, their water's recycled, their shit is put in their thigh pads. That's actually, like, the, the new one, is as gritty as it is, does move away from the dirty details in that regard. Um, yeah, yeah, I bet, though. Yeah, I'm willing to bet, though, that in the new one, if you paused and that, like, when he was reading through the book mm. and it showed the suit and they had the different diagrams, I oh, bet it's that some little it goes here. There. And then I have in my notes, there's some bad bad voiceover slash tele telepathy going oh, yeah, on. I suppose we should talk about the voiceover because yeah, that's kind of relevant to like what we I like I you mean, definitely need it in this movie, but like it's yeah. also even just it doesn't help a lot. It's necessary in a sense. It's also kind of surreal, like which suits David Lynch in a way, you know, but um like this is a, a movie dealing with sort of telekinesis but actually hearing voices never is actually related to any of the telekinesis in the movie which is kind of weird or the psychic Benny Gesserit powers so it's kind of weird but um what it does is it's not expository it's actually completely the opposite every actual line of dialogue is expository in this fucking movie there is no time for any actual emotion or any character exploration. So the right. only time you get it is through them telling you what they're feeling through their thoughts in the voiceover. So it's like, I love my son. And it's like, that sounds stupid. I mean, it's a little, you get more than that, but that's the sentiment, the gist of it, you know, or something. You actually need it because the movie does not pause to allow what could have been a dialogue exchange, you know, where she's talking to her husband. The movie doesn't have time for that has no time at all for her to talk to her husband about how they love their son so much. So we have to hear her thoughts about how I love Paul. I'm so proud of him. I mean, we actually, we do get one scene with his father, but that's it. I mean, mm. or any other character, they always tell you what they're, they're feeling through their um, voiceovers. So it's, it's the only time in the movie there's not expository information. So that was kind of a, like one of the criticisms that was a bit misleading. There were a couple of others. So, and then this next scene, we're flying through Dune, kind of getting the lay of the land, um, explaining what where the harvesters are at, how like they work, and then we see signs of worms. And the giant worms on Dune follow rhythmic patterns. So if you walk or move out of rhythm and like with like some sway or some just unevenness, they won't necessarily sense you. But if you hear like a constant like boom 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 or rum rum you know like a constant rhythmic sound they're yeah. they're gonna come after you um and that's what harvesters make a lot of they make a lot of rhythmic right. sounds so they fly by this harvester and they see like lightning in the ground and that like a worm is coming and those signs of a worm and they call down to the harvester and they're like you gotta get the fuck out of there and they land and they pick they save some people and david lynch is the cameo of the guy like in the boiler the room the only guy harvester. to be unlucky enough to not get saved yes <laughs> like, yes okay. 
Uh, and it's just kind of funny because like David Lynch isn't much of an actor and it's just goofy with him being like, he's like, oh, really we got all this spice down here. We got all this spice down here. Like, what are we going to do with all the spice? We can't leave this that's, spice. That's every David Lynch performance I've ever fucking seen. <laughs> it's, that's, it's that in Twin Peaks and that Louie episode Josh showed me. It's, he's just screaming spice you know i i fucking know it's like in the new one i kind of hope that the voice of the radio because we don't see that person but we get the their their voice right. over the radio i hope dennis Villeneuve did that voice if he didn't he fair, missed an opportunity but like if he did that's cool and then they fly off they only save a couple uh the worm eats the entire harvester which is just you know shows the power of the worm and the worms and like how like what and i mean it's sure it's not like it eats it by a little and like that looks thing. good that entire yeah. scene looks pretty damn good the david lynch thing and like the logic behind like do harvesters just deal right. with this shit all the time like do they barely get started and then they're Which I, I gotta admit you were ahead of me but i know we were talking about this but i'd be like because it didn't take me until the new version where they actually provide a sort of solution to that problem for me to even right, question the in the air first balloons. Place. Right. Where, where they actually have extraction things that they send out. And obviously it's like, where are those? Are you sure you can always reach people in time? And then the mechanism fails, which is like, that can't be the first time this has happened. There should be like, it should be like a parachute. There should be some fail safe. Never mind all of that. I thought, why don't you just fucking have it attached to the harvester? Mm -hmm. But I never even thought of any of this until the new movie brought in yeah. a solution. It, it really is covering a bigger plot hole for a smaller plot hole. Yeah, I think they call that lampshading, but it doesn't totally. It's like a ripped and tattered lampshade. You know? right. It does so, make more sense, though. Yeah. A little more. Well, I guess as far as rhythmic sounds, just getting that out of the way, because that mm -hmm. comes into play later. I, I'll say in the new movie, no matter what they try to do to be more grounded and everything, like the, the sandwalk looks ridiculous. It looks totally cheesy. Retarded. I would well, think you're expending. Yeah, the sandwalk yeah. always does. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I I would think you're expending more water that way. But it, honestly, you just might not have any choice because the alternative is to get snatched up by a worm. When he puts on his suit in both films, when he puts on his suit, he does mm -hmm. it in desert fashion, which oh, yes. in neither movie is it actually displayed what the fuck desert fashion is. Okay, no, it's really, really important from what I can gather. It's whether you put your boots on the inside or the outside. Fucking, I mean, like, he, so then, there's basically a 50-50 movies, chance. Paul is just like, it seemed like the right thing to do. And they're like, damn, he might be the chosen one. Right, 50-50. <laughs> like, do you tuck your, which I've done both. I mean, you know, do you tuck like, your Like, snow your is boots? not too dissimilar for walking in sand. <laughs> and Honestly, I've done, you know, to me. I would probably tuck it in just to stop the sand from getting into your boot, but he actually wears the pants on the outside of the boot. Yeah, so I would do I it on the outside, like with snow pants. But it's a thicker material. It's it's leather. I mean, it, it looks like le it's actually leather, but it, it's probably supposed to be something else. But so mm -hmm. I'm also thinking it's black in a desert. <laughs> you know, like, that's true. That's, anyway, nitpicking stuff, but still worth it. Yeah. The design looks really cool. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's really In unique. both movies, I like the way the suit looks yeah and like, we're doing a lot of both movies this both movies that i'm really just, not I, trying to compare one of the other like we're 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 talking about dune 84 in a dune 84 context but 
to understand the bigger picture of what the fuck is actually going on. Like, I would say the new movie helps. Better. It helps knowing both films. Yeah, the new film makes a lot of information uh, digestible. Uh, I think that would be the best way. But like, um, but, yes, because they bring up a lot of the same stuff. Like, yeah. it's not like the '84 Dune. Like, it neglected a lot of the love story, like completely. But oh other than that, like, it gets some of the points, a lot of the points down. It like, but you, the great point that you brought up is it never goes back to them, ever. Uh I guess what I'd say really quickly to summarize like the differences and why why the, the actually I think the the comparisons are of value. For, I mean, for one thing, we're not spoiling anything that's in the new movie that isn't in the original. Mm -hmm. uh, but the new movie does a better job of conveying information. But even watching it, I was kind of like, would people even get this? You know, like even in the new version where it takes its time, like there's just, I I don't know. I mean. Uh, more than definitely uh, more like, things clicked for me watching in the second time. yeah i think i think it as a non-reader of the book yeah so i guess to summarize the different like they're identical movies but one is again the most densely packed movie i've ever watched in my life and the other if you could actually criticize it knowing the whole story on some level uh is that it takes too much time right to mm -hmm. actually tell like just the first third to if he hits the motherfucking ground running it makes it three hours in part two. He could maybe cover the rest of the material, barely. Um, otherwise, okay. it's going to have to be three like he's he wants to do. He didn't even know he was going to get a part two until the first part released. I'm like, why push it to part three? You know, because he it has been confirmed we're going to get a part two. There's going to be an HBO show about the Benny Gesserits. But we don't know we're going to get part three. We're in a pandemic. <laughs> I mean, this is material that's like fucking 60 years old almost i mean it's a really niche you know audience i think what they did to kind of compensate that is make everybody younger and you know like kind of the young hip sexy thing i was skeptical you know i thought they were just doing like it's pretty people to bring in the younger audience it's really slow paced that's not sexy to a younger audience you know like i mean yeah. I, I don't know if they're gonna but i know blade runner 2049 really failed and that was rated r so they had to Mm -hmm. I thought they brought it down to PG-13, but I guess Lynch's was PG-13, so they're not selling out that way. But um, yeah, I, they're I, so they're so close to an R with the new one, though. I would have on it. There's a decapitation. If they get, all, if they get Peter three, Jackson got but, further with decapitations in the Lord of the Rings. I mean, release the prisoners and shit. You know, right. I mean, it's hard because they want to get the other ones made, so they don't want to necessarily trip it to rated R. Okay, so Paul eats the. Eat some spice and trips out, and then we get some trippy shit. Didn't really yeah. gather too much from that. Um, then there's a floating needle that's like entered his uh, a hunter domicile. Seeker. Hunter Seekers, they're called. Oh, okay, Hunter Seekers. And uh, so that's, and that, and it almost kills a lady that opens the door and he saves mm -hmm. her. And it's basically proof that there's a traitor in their midst because those can only be controlled or sent. Yeah, like in in, the, in in adjacent areas. In the miniseries in the new movie, they actually find like who's operating it. I like the really new version where that's fucked up. He's actually sealed in the wall. That's how little like the Harkonnens. Yeah, everything that guy's gonna die. It's like Oz, you know, the dude being mm. sealed into the wall and like that's hardcore. But anyway, such is their commitment to killing the Atreides. So that was actually really scary, I thought, in the new dude. But um anyway, the point is yeah, Paul is, is almost assassinated. Paul's father is killed by Dean Stockwell's character. He want UA wants to exchange this offering of killing the Duke to uh, 
to the Baron so that the Baron would free his wife from enslavement, yeah. basically. But he uh, also has an and Aesop demands Aesop. Duke to kill the Baron with this tooth that if he bites down on it would release a poison. In exchange, he says he'll try to give, and this will come into play actually later, so uh, that he will try to give Paul and Jessica the best chance that he can if he promises to try and kill the Duke on his behalf. But he's also doing it because he has, I think you get the sense that he realizes in all likelihood his wife's dead, but there is that hope. And that hope is enough for him to sell out everything. But I think he knows that it's a lost cause, however you look at it. The Atreides were never gonna make it on uh, Arrakis. And, you know, so he sells them out to save his wife. So that's kind of the bargain. Like you can kill the Baron and, uh, and I'll try to help you, uh, Paul and Jessica. So he's a Judas, but he's kind of a nice Judas. Yeah, he's a Judas who thought this was a lost cause anyway. You were already, I, I know that's in the new version. He just says you were already dead. Like you were set up to fail. Uh, it's not as clear here that the Atreides didn't stand any chance, but that was still kind of his way of looking at it, you know? But he's trying to save his wife. But I think he kind of on some level knows she's already dead. And with Paul's father um, practically dead, the Atreides, the Atreides army is beaten. Mm -hmm. It's invaded by the Harkonnens and slaughtered. There's a lot to that scene, but that's the main note. So I'm actually just- Somewhere in there, that. Paul and Jessica are paralyzed and abducted be the last part that's kind of important how who paralyzed them i guess it would be you uh i do know that yui took uh the duke's ring to give to, to paul yeah to um paul. so he so that probably is the case he probably oh, paralyzed paul and then gave him the ring what i was gonna oh yeah what i was gonna say and again the new version does this way better because i'm pretty sure of this that the lynch version never actually says why they can't just outright kill paul and his mother which mm -hmm. is a big problem because in the in the new version like they're like well because we might face a jet a bezzy generate uh truth sayer who's like a human lie detector and we promised in that version that we would not kill paul or the mother directly so we can say we just dumped them off in the desert we didn't kill them we just left them for dead you know and um technically keeping the bargain that was established in the new movie here it's to hide evidence but why everybody's on board with this I don't think we ever really get much of a scene where the Bene Gesserits are so committed as to oppose the emperor or the uh, the spacefaring guild, the, the navigator guild, you know? So really, if they just kill Paul and Jessica, you know, I mean, the Harkonnens invaded and killed literally everybody else. I wonder what happened to them, you know? I mean, I just don't see the need to hide it um that's something i really honestly don't think is ever formally explained in the lynch film which would be a massive plot hole they just say we need to hide the bodies nobody can ever find them why mm -hmm. and stock stockwell is killed i believe in both movies by the baron and uh so like his you know his offering of the duke isn't very isn't rewarded it's just yeah you're dead too paul and his mother defeat their captors Using the voice, I guess that's yes, yeah. What, using yeah. using the voice, which is hard to replicate, but um, it's like a voice kind of psychological, like physical, like kind of force you know, power, so like like the force. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Actually, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Like the you. You know, these are not the droids you're looking for. Thing. Mm -hmm. Exactly like that. The Duke dies, but 
like as he's dying, he bites down on the tooth and hears some bad voiceover. I don't, I don't like like the remember the tooth, remember the tooth. I don't, I don't really like that part. I think the idea was just that he's so drugged up, he has to try and remember what he was even told. He doesn't know what's happening. But yeah, I mean, I so I, I suppose the Baron is just out of the way though, so he the Baron doesn't get poisoned at all in the eighty four version. But right. Brad Dourif dies. I obviously I love Brad Dourif. He's playing sort of a, 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 a prototype cream of worm tongue character, but he's gone mm-hmm. now. Uh, so. And so this is like a purging of all of Paul's allies because Max, Max von Sydow's character, who was the pilot when they were looking over the worm. He's a Fremen that instructs him. He's kind of like a Fremen ally, you know? Yeah, he, he, he was like the pilot. Um, his suit's destroyed, so he's like gushing water and sent to die. Paul and his mother evade or like on the run from a worm and use a oh. thumper to try to distract one for a while, but they they can't get that far away. And then a worm is on their path. And then all of a sudden a different thumper shows up. And these thumpers well, are stakes you put in the ground that go boom, boom, I, boom. Again, boom. a tiny opportunity to praise this version of the, the new one. I mean... Uh, in the new version, once they hit rock, the worm just kind of emerges. And yeah, I mean, it's probably going to hit that rock. And so it would come up and they come up in other places. Like I'd say the sci-fi miniseries does a better job when the um, the spice harvesting vehicle is consumed. Like the bird is so uh, weighted down that they, you know, barely make it out of the mouth of the worm, you know, in the sci-fi version, which there's a lot more tension there. But anyway, um, this is like the new version is the only version where they don't actually hide in a crevice in the rocks to stop the worm from getting at them here. Like in the new version, they just stop at the rock and the worm just kind of sits there. It also does bring to mind like what the worms subsist off of. I don't know if they eat spice because I mean, if they're living off of humans. I think they do eat spice. Like, I think that's, I don't know. Is it like, yeah, they we get a spice and whatever the fuck moves. Right. I think what it uh, is. Yeah, because I was going to say it's like a megalodon eating an anchovy. Otherwise, I don't see how you survive. Right. You know, whales, I guess whales just eat plankton, which is weird. Yeah, like, I mean, and they're I mean, fucking the biggest animals in the world. They just eat a shit ton of that. Well, all right. Well, yeah, I they mean, because I know. They a bunch of plankton and krill and shrimp, and it's about all they eat. <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, maybe this. They're like whales. Maybe, they're like sand whales. They're like yeah. more carnivorous whales. Uh, so, and then. A tribe appears, a tribe of Fremen. We're a lot friendlier in this movie than in any other version. <laughs> um, Correct. The Fremen and immediately kind of get owned by the mother and Paul. And and it looks cheesy because like they don't really have, I think, in this version much of a fight, like a fight, like an actual like fighting, like well laid out like fighting style because like yeah. the mother literally just puts a knife to the guy's throat and he's like my god you actually <laughs> I know. It's, yeah it, uh, what is it okay so in every version i think this encounter is awkward and in every version it plays out the same way i mean it was a I, little better with this with the new one but not the thing is, it looks like Paul's running off like a little bitch in every version, while leaving his mother on the ground, of course, logically, it makes sense that he's going to get a vantage point. And he's going to snipe with this gun, which mostly guns don't matter, but this one does. I, get, I don't think the 
from if you use the voice she... with it, I think it matters. Huh? I think if you use the voice with it, it matters. That's different. That's, okay, so that's exclusive to this version. That's the weirding module, which doesn't exist in anything, even the book. That much I do know. Um, but this is a pistol. I know this. It's fun. yeah. And so the pistol. The thing is that I think the Fremen don't wear shields. Which why not? You kill Harkonnen soldiers all the fucking time. In the sci-fi version and the new version, it's by springing out of the sand and stabbing them. You know, surprise attacks. The sci-fi version goes a little crazy, where like they're just there wherever Harkonnen lands in all the vast infinite space of the desert. There are Fremen under the sand just waiting to kill them. Um, but whatever. Anyway, um, yeah, so I don't know why they don't take the shields, but whatever. Paul takes a pistol, gets an advantage point, is ready to, you know, it, that happens in every version. I just think he always kind of looks like a bitch running away from his mother who's pregnant. I'll, 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 you know, I'll, of course, he has bit. to do what he does. It makes logical sense. I just, yeah. it's not a good. Yeah, it's, just, it's a it's an awkward scene so they ask for them to teach their way of fighting uh the like, weird yes, way the fremen in this one are very welcoming they already show them the water uh that yeah, they right have, they the have no, 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 only their biggest secret in every other version you know well i don't know about the new version because we don't get there but but that's a big secret you know and there's like hey check it out we have massive caches of water, which I don't know how that doesn't find its way into ground into becoming groundwater el yeah. like elsewhere in Dune. Is, but that's fine. I'll give I'll give I, okay. So, I'll give so, all versions of Dune that credit. Like they contain their water. The water caches in the mini series. I think the implication is that what they're doing is harvesting water from dead people, and I don't even know where. I mean, and then trying to fill these stockpiles over it's all evaporate. I don't know how it works. I mm. think that's sort of the implication though. So they're trying to build a big enough water supply where nothing can be held over their heads by the invading force, I think. And then elsewhere, the Reverend Mother dies. And yeah. then we have a time, a massive time jump totally where shit. they take this love story between Paul and Shani, who's played by Sean Young. It's explained their entire love story. Uh, yes. So the love story in this one is dog shit. Um, <laughs> and then he's just getting better using his skills, using the voice, using the weirding way, teaches people, trains people. Well, okay, um, I'll say a couple of things there. So the only excuse I can give the love story. So the love story is the idea is that he has become nonlinear. I think at this point in the story, he is becoming what the Benny Jesuits always wanted to produce. Again, this is not clearly explained and it doesn't excuse that it doesn't really work, but their love is perceived non-linearly. He says, I've always loved you throughout time. I've always known you, I've always loved you. And that's all you get. And, and the weirding way in this is using sound much like the Benny Jesuits use to, instead of influence people is actually killing weapons. So there are certain sounds that it's a weird concept, but that filtered through this module will destroy physical objects, melt organs, set people on fire if you tap into the right sound wave. And I guess not everybody's capable of the right sound wave. So this produces different things in different people. I don't fucking, it's a mess. And then comes probably what I would say for me is the best scene of the movie when he rides the worm. They yes put in a thumper and they track this worm to come over. He like sticks some hooks in it, sticks a rope over it. 
climbs into it. He looks through its gills and we see the inside of the mouth through the back, which I think is yeah, a pretty cool shot. Too. Yeah, I mean, which is kind of cool that they're- Yeah, yeah, and the worm looks great. By many standards, the worm in the 84 version looks good, I think. And that's when he really like wins over the Fremen because he's basically a fucking messiah at that point. Yeah. It's like, you've really learned our ways if you can ride That's, a worm. Well, that was their biggest worm too in the miniseries. Like he, in fact, people are trying to kill him the whole time until he rides the biggest worm. And then when he does that, he proves himself. So mm -hmm. that's kind of what that was about. Again, I'm cheating there, but yeah, but this that, obviously the general sentiment came across. And then they have a big like kind of montage slash time jump of them kicking Harkonnen's asses. Yeah. And the Harkonnen general isn't telling the Baron about this because he's too ashamed, uh, right. which eventually gets the Harkonnen general's head cut off anyway. Um, and they also meet back up with Gurney, which is a pretty yeah, Patrick Stewart pretty in all right scene. Back in the skullet, you know, which he does one more time in the Moby Dick 90s miniseries. Um, mm -hmm. I, I haven't seen Patrick Stewart with a skullet since, but you know, it's it's beautiful. Anyway, oh yeah, I wanted to say, uh, there's kind of this weird thing like where there's this little pug or something that like, you know, pops up in all these scenes. And then when Atreides is attacked by the Harkonnens, Stuart rides into battle with a pug strapped like a baby to his chest. You know, he's like, oh, you know, and then we never see the pug again, but he calls um, Paul pup, young pup. So I'm thinking something bad happened to that puppy. You know, there's oh, like this oh. whole backstory about this little puppy that shows up in the film. It's like apocalypse now. It's like we got to go back to the pub. I don't know what happened there. I don't. I don't. You know. But it's just gone after that. Paul drinks the water of life and trips even harder, <laughs> which we didn't really. I don't think it was super well explained what the water of life was until we had it. Uh, I do like in this version that we know it's hardcore because they bind him. Like yes, you know, like what's he gonna do? Tear his own dick off? Gouge his own eyes out? Like this is. Not everybody who's ever attempted I've seen. I wish I just knew what the water of life, what, what the fuck it was. It's explained better. It's what his mother had to take. And again, the miniseries covers all this. Like, so his mother ingests the water of life to ascend to the new, her new role as this, you know, whatever new mother, Bene Gesserit. She's like the highest one, but she was pregnant at the time, which produces Paul's younger sister who is like not even human. She just sees everything. She's the universe. Like she's, you know, mm -hmm. um, and we get kind of that at the end and it makes yeah, no sense. And that kind of, that kind of happens during the time jump with the love stories. That is his right. sister is born. But it's almost incomprehensible. But yeah, I mean, who does, like- Who does, who's the uh, father of that child? Was she already well, pregnant? It was, was Atreides' father. Yeah, but I mean, but the thing mm -hmm. that made her into such a freak was that she took the water of life, and this is never in the movie. Well, well, maybe it is, but it's never explained, whatever. Anyway, that like, she takes the water of life while pregnant, which has never been done. That means the mm -hmm. child sees everything at once. <laughs> Time is non-linear. She's a freak of nature. Um, so she's <laughs> even more like powerful than Paul um in a way and like yeah so but that's where the little so, girl comes from so it's much she, better the mother was pregnant like the entire first half of the movie yeah so now the uh really the fremen and paul go to battle for like the big like final battle scene uh and they say 
long live the warriors or something like that and it's a pretty rousing speech it's, it's short but it's rousing uh or long live the fighters something like that the key um, part is that paul is now riding a giant fucking worm uh, but... into battle yes and they blow they blow up a wall with some atomic bombs which is pretty cool and uh storm i guess like enshrouds their attack mm -hmm. or approach. and at this point the emperor is totally on the harkonnen side but he's like mad at the baron he's like why do you fucking suck <laughs> and the baron's kind of tripping out uh paul's sister this is when she gets fucking witchy as shit she uh mind fucks the te like a telepathic telepathic yeah, yeah. woman what what's it called uh, Benny. The movie, it, it appears as though she's just an envoy which like what kind of asshole sends their little sister as an envoy in this dire situation but like in the miniseries she was actually captured so mm. you know but yeah well, um, well, she's a fucking secret weapon because she's fucking witchy shit yeah. uh they're riding in on worms the sister kills the baron by didn't she pull like a heart plug out of him or something along those lines? I can't, yeah, I can't remember. Or fucking like nipple straps or something. And like, so he's got like this almost smiley slash mark. And then he just goes like flying out of control. Then he, a hole in the he, wall. He pulls some nipple straps. I, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Yes. She rips the, the bondage gear off and and, <laughs> and then he flies into what was going to be the wall, but then the wall got fucking collapsed and then he flies directly into a worm's mouth. Which is like, I don't know if that whole chamber was pressurized or something because he goes flying out like it's a fucking airplane or something into the worm's Yeah, and, and she even had to adjust not to fly. And she's just on an extra fucking level because she's like fucking tripping out, like in the wind, like looking oh, yeah, at yeah, I know that fucking scene. Yeah, she's got like that's... a knife, there's fire in the background. She's like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great fucking, honestly, that that's my favorite, like non worm. Well, I guess it is worm related, uh, non main character related scene. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's confusing, but it's like, yeah, it's just creepy as shit. <laughs> um, so, and then Paul fights Sting with the with the Emperor's blade. So, like, he's Sting is at this point is like the only fucking Harkonnen left, and the Emperor is still. Well, he's not, I mean, because there are other gingers in the crowd. I'm like, those are probably Harkonnen. So, like, when Paul's like, you know, there's a Harkonnen in your midst. It's like, yeah, there's several. But you know, but the only one that really—I—I uh, I, I suppose, but maybe like the only like royalty, maybe or yeah. like of that big the main family. And the emperor still sticks to his guns and being on the Harkonnen side, he's like, "Yes, fight! You can fight with the emperor's blade." Right. And well, Sting after, does get some kicks and knocks in and shit. So after an actual pretty, pretty suspenseful battle, uh, yeah. Paul kills Paul kills Sting in the name of peace and love for all of time. <laughs> um you know he even shouts at the dead body till it cracks the temple which is kind of biblical you know in the name of peace and love and it's just and then, be benevolent after this point <laughs> so. and, and then they chant they chant more more deep which Muhadib, is, is yeah, Muhadib, given name um yeah, but yeah, by the, the fremen messiah i think yeah it basically means messiah and then it starts to rain and what i think he's doing this is something I was thinking when I was watching the new version. I'm like, is there a reason you couldn't just bring all that water from Caledon? Because I'm sure we have water purification 8,000 years into the future that's doable. You yeah. know, it doesn't like, is there a reason we couldn't just import water? So 
I don't know the answer to that because we have these massive spaceships in the new version. But in any case, Paul, I think the idea, because we do cut to Caladan, is that he's bringing rain in and because the waves on Caladan start to rise and crash. And like, I mean, like he's doing something. And I think he's bringing the rain through space and time from his home planet, you know, because mm. Sean Young's like, tell me about your home world and there's water or plenty, all that shit. He's bringing it to Arrakis. Either I think way, that's the sentiment rains. of that scene. It's so confusing. I don't know, but why cut to Caladan otherwise? And, and then it cuts to the credits with giant waves going over. And then they do the uh, strategy of doing the credits where you see the actor and then, like in, and then in alphabetical order. So like we like Brad Dourif, but, but he's like up there. Even but he he's like third. Part. And yeah. the first two, you don't even fucking remember. <laughs> like, right. Like it's just it's just goofy as shit, and that's the end of the movie. Yeah. Now let, let's move on to place in society. We've touched on this a little bit. You can see things in Star Wars. You can see things in the Matrix. You can see things in a lot of different, more successful films. Dune was written before Star Wars, but the movie came out after, and everything was chasing the success of Star Wars. So that's significant. Um, but what I was going to say is Dune does have a lot of influence like so mass effect the trilogy i mean i know you're not big into games but that is considered one of the biggest video game franchises one of the greatest games of all time uh the kinetic barriers are definitely lifted from dune there are even giant sandworms in the second game taken from dune star you know like i said the mandalorian takes giant sandworms from dune i mean its reach is definitely out there um uh but what else i was going to say is in the world of video video games uh this is going to be a really nebulous connection, but I'm going to make it anyway. Um, Dune 2 was a sequel directly to the film produced by Westwood Studios in 1992. Dune 2 was the first real-time strategy game um, really kind of ever, and that influenced Warcraft, which well, obviously with World of Warcraft, it changed genres and became more like EverQuest and Ultima Online. It became you know an MMO, but without Dune 2, we wouldn't have had Command and Conquer, I mean, which was another EA, uh, I mean, we wouldn't have had Warcraft, we wouldn't have had Starcraft, we wouldn't have had ultimately World of Warcraft, uh, hugely influential game. Uh, but what Westwood also did before being devoured by the sandworm that is EA, because that's a death sentence. If you get acquired by EA, you make one or two games and they eat you. So, and then you're dissolved, but they made the Blade Runner video game. Blade Runner was considered one of the greatest nineties adventure games of all time. Uh, really revolutionary as far as its use of CGI. Um, yeah, well, I mean, in its cutscenes, I mean, it's really ahead of its time, that that game. But anyway, so like Dune's influence is, is wide and, and a lot of things happen because of it. There are like 50 sequels. There are the sci-fi uh, channel series, like the effects aren't really good, but James McAvoy's in the sequel, Children of Dune, which adapts like two of the sequel novels. And, and it's got a, a lot of actually great talent in that one. But um, I don't know. I mean, a lot of things came out of Dune. The movie might not have been the greatest movie ever, but I, I, I also want to kind of say that, like, I mean, went the route of adapting the full book in two hours and 15 fucking minutes. And um, that was bold. I mean, right? Like it did not cut anything. It, it didn't cut any of the terminology. It didn't condense anything. I, well, it did the love story. But I, mean, I wonder it, what I, this Dune would have been like if they gave it two more movies. The game yeah, exactly. Wrapping thoughts. Um, Chodorowsky's Dune is considered like one of the greatest movies ever made back in like the late 70s. And 
he acquired some of the biggest fucking talents, man. Like H.R. Uh, Geiger, I think that's how you say it. I've, I've always mm-hmm. said Geiger. I've heard some people say yep. before he was ever commissioned for Alien. He got like he got Mobius to do all the storyboards. I mean, like, and since then, uh, obviously, it has not come to be. But he has produced his own uh, graphic novels, one of which was actually illustrated by Mobius. Orson Welles was going to be the Baron. Uh, I mean, like, God, I'm trying to think. David Carradine, I forget who he was going to play. Like, Pink Floyd was going to do the fucking soundtrack. I mean, this thing was like Orson Welles would have been a good Baron. I'm yeah, I guess he bribed Orson Welles. Like he went into the restaurant, Orson Welles was eating and drinking. This is according to him anyway. He's like, being very he finest, like... yeah, he bought him the finest wine. He's like, you know, please be in my movie. Or he idolized Orson Welles and Orson's like, I just, nah, you know, I'm, I've got too much as it is. He's like, I will let you eat here every, I'll work it into the budget. You eat here every fucking day, drink everything you want. He's like, I'll do it. And like that was, so he got Orson Welles on board as the Baron. You know, and like, it just was a dream team assembly. Um, I mean, and it just never got made. Honestly, I don't know if it ever would have been a great movie, but it's one of those big speculations in the history of cinema. One of those big what ifs in the history of cinema. The last thing I was going to say, because people always championing, championed that version as like, oh, that would have been so much better. I think if we had gotten that version, I think people would say the same thing about the David Lynch version. You know what I mean? Like we would have been like, it was a David Lynch film that had Toto doing the soundtrack, had Sting, Max von Sido. I mean, you know, we would have probably talked about it the same way. And it's kind of interesting that across all spectrums, they had directors in mind that were very untraditional. Ultimately, that's why Jodorowsky's version failed, but they kind of came back with David Lynch, who's Mm -hmm. definitely not traditional, much to the detriment of the film. I mean, from what you listen to about production and everything, he wanted to do things his way. Things are shot in a certain way. But I think, yeah, I think if we got in Jodorowsky's version, I think we'd talk about the Lynch version, you know, and vice versa. So I guess let's move on to recommendations. I'll start with Blue Velvet. I think it's, for me, it's the best David Lynch film. I'd also recommend one that you mentioned, like uh, Mulholland Drive. Yeah, and then Blade Runner 2049, which is directed by the same person that directed this. Denis Villeneuve's. Sounds right. Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> uh, and then just right along with that, also since Sean Young's in it and it's like just two years apart, the original Blade Runner. Yes. Uh, which I've mentioned, which I have recommended a lot. And I also recommend The Matrix because fuck it. Like it's it's similar as well with like being the chosen one. I'd recommend Star Wars, but you've probably fucking seen Star Wars. Uh, what are some of your recommendations, Dakota? I mean, with the Matrix, as far as CGI, definitely was an improvement from dude. I mean, obviously 10 years later, but um, uh, what was I going to do? Tremors would <laughs> be like, yeah, yeah. Desert Worms. I, I I remember liking Tremors quite a bit. Um, I haven't they seen it like so eight long. of them, though. They made like a lot of like. Okay, they, I saw the first three, and for sure I can say that at least as a kid, I liked the first two. Yeah. Um, one was like, I think made for the sci-fi channel, Tremors 2. I could be wrong. I don't know. Whatever. They're really low budget. I like them though. But uh, the other, I was going to say Pitch Black. Uh, you know, a lot of people think it's derivative. I, I think it really stands up to time. I fully acknowledge all of its flaws, you know, uh, and I can still, after all of that, really, I do think it's massively underappreciated. But that's again, people, be, I mean, that's people being stranded on a desert planet with a organism who's... I guess life cycle might be questionable, kind of like the sandworms. But like you said, maybe they're living off the 
off a spice plane today. I don't fucking know. Um, but in pitch black, they killed every other thing on the planet. So that is a, a definitely a plot hole. I guess if we're going to go with like the new Dune, then obviously enemy prisoners, those are great. And obviously the new Blade Runner, I mean, 2049, um, arrival. Def- I mean, he's really, I mean, he's good. He's definitely good. So let's That's get on the rating. Nice Dakota, out of five stars, what do you give the 1984 David Lynch's Dune? Yeah, uh, I'm not going to say it's a misunderstood masterpiece. I would say it's slightly misunderstood, though. I, it tried to do the impossible, which was fucking literally goddamn impossible. There's something to it. That's all I can say. There's something about Dune, right? It's endured, um, to my mind. Uh, there's There are things to like. It's an impossible movie that they actually fucking made. In that way, it's like, I think, really something to at least watch. You know, mm-hmm. I mean... Uh, just for the cinematic history of it, you know, because like nobody has attempted anything like this, I think, since or before. It's like a biblical epic, but 5,000 times more complicated. And I, I, it's just a weird movie, but almost incomprehensible. So I don't know, watch the sci-fi miniseries, watch the new version, um, and it'll make a lot more sense. You'll probably appreciate it. But that's, that being said, obviously, that's not, you have to take it as its own thing and as its own thing you'd probably have to watch it 50 times to make any sort of sense of it. And you're not going to want to watch it 50 fucking times. So, um, but there is a lot to like. So 3.5, I think I said, yeah, 3.5. 3.5. I give it three, but okay. that's actually, that is an improvement from the first time I saw it. First time yeah. I saw it, I feel like it, it kind of like screamed like two and a half for me. Second time I saw it, I was like, you know what? Yeah, it does. it does a decent amount right. It has the bones, you know what I mean? And that that's something like it, ha- it has the bones, but it just could not convey itself very that's well. And there's obvious reasons for that, that they crammed it all in one movie. And maybe if they were given a deal for a trilogy from the beginning, they could spread it out a bit, but they weren't doing that so often yeah. at that point in time. Like, they're still they, not doing it. Like I feel uh, like, like the new director is pushing his luck by saying it's going to be three now. You're like again, mm-hmm. you didn't know you're even going to have two. Even, even <laughs> Indiana know? Jones, even Indiana Jones, like they did Raiders, and then you know they tied the knot on Raiders. Like they didn't have to make another movie, but it was very successful, so they did. So be sure to check out our Spotify if you're watching on YouTube. Check out our YouTube if you're listening on Spotify or, or where any other podcasts are found, like Apple, Google, etc. We have a Twitter and an Instagram that are somewhat active. Yeah, you'll at least get the news of new new of new stuff coming out. Yeah, uh, we're going to be try, we're going to try to get some different stuff out here. Going to try to get some merchandise. Uh, check out our Patreon if you'd be so kind. That's about it. I'm Nate. This is Dakota, and we're the Spoiler Alert Podcast. Uh, Have a good one, everybody.